Amen. All right, if you have the Bible with you, uh, let's turn to the book of James chapter 1, and we are going to be there for a few moments, and then we'll be going to John chapter 11. This is the very last uh, message in this series on 40 Days of Faith, and uh, as a pastor uh, for the last 30-some years, it's hard to believe, I don't, know how, I don't know how that happened since I'm only 36 years old, but anyways, 30 years old, 36 years old, 30 years experience, you, go, you do the math. But as a pastor, I've, I have walked with people um, through many, many difficult circumstances and situations in their lives, and uh, some of them very painful, and yet when they came out on the other side of that particular incident in their life, their faith, you would think, would be like shattered, it would be weak, it would be just like, you know, I don't want anything else to do with God after I've been treated in such a way. But instead, the opposite is true. They come out on the other side of this very, uh, what I call, pivotal circumstance in their life, and their faith is strong, it's resilient, it's unshakable. And so you have to ask yourself the question, you know, what is it about their story that uh, enabled them to experience God in the midst of their circumstances in such a way that it literally um, just changed the trajectory of their faith walk with God. Uh, a pivotal cir circumstance is what I call a defining moment. It's a defining moment in your life in which um, God seems maybe so far away, but then you realize that there is a God and he knows your name and and his presence in the midst of your circumstance, whether it was a bout with cancer, maybe you had gone through a divorce, maybe it was uh, the death of a child, the loss of a job, it might have been, you know, you were raped, there was an abortion that took place, a time of testing. But through all of that, in those defining moments, God unveiled himself in a very real and very practical and personal way. So now when you come to the Bible and you read the Bible, the Bible's no longer just, oh, some stories, this is what happened, and oh, that's wonderful, I've heard those stories before, I remember being in Sunday school as a child, and the flannel graphs and all that, oh, and, and you yawn. Now, when God has unveiled himself in those pivotal moments in your life, those stories in Scripture are very real to you. They're very personal to you. You know, David fighting Goliath is just not some story long, long time ago, but it is about you fighting your own personal giant and God enabling you to slay that giant so that it no longer has mastery over you. All right? So some of you, it might have been an addiction where that addiction just like dominated your life, dominated your thoughts, dominated your decisions, and no matter how, how hard you struggled, it just kept yelling at you just like Goliath was yelling to the armies of Israel, hey, whoever, who, who's going to come down here and fight me? Who's going to take me on? And day after day, he just kept doing that. And so day after day, your thoughts were just like rolling over, over and over and over again. But yet God gave you the strength and the ability and the faith and confidence in him to slay that giant in your life. And God has set you free. And now that story takes on a whole new meaning to you rather than, you know, David took on Goliath so many years ago. Although pivotal circumstances are often negative, sometimes they are positive. 
For example, it might be for you, there was a, a defining moment in your life when you responded to God's call and went on a mission trip. Maybe it was a short-term mission trip. And as a result of that mission trip, man, you, God just came and, and revealed himself to you in very profound ways. Because when you went on that mission trip, you thought to yourself, you know, I'm not gifted enough. I'm not talented enough. I'm not smart enough. I really don't have what it takes to pull this off. And I don't think I can be used by God. And then God just like... He just kind of sits back and laughs, and he says, ha, 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 well, watch how I can use you because you have surrendered your life, and you've taken the time to step out onto the mission field in response to my call for you to go and do that, and then God just does dramatic things that forever changes the trajectory of your faith walk with God. It might be the birth of a first child. You know, I remember when Stacy was first born, and I'm thinking to myself, when that baby was handed to me and my daughter, and, and I, I'm looking at her, and I'm thinking, oh, my word, what do I do with this? Is there an instruction manual somewhere? I don't see it. You know, is it... And so, but, but as you're trying to parent, and, you know, you, you... Now, before I had kids, I had all kinds of philosophies about good parenting, and then I had a child... I threw all those out because now i got no philosophies. I just say, you know, hang on for the ride. That's about all you can do. Hang on for the ride. And, uh, but, you know, God works through children to teach us and to form us and fashion our faith in him if we will allow him to do that. But most of the time, the negative things that um, just kind of come out of the blue are those defining moments. It might be that phone call you did not expect, a conversation you really didn't want to have. It might be... Um, you know, it's uh, you're stuck in something bigger than life, and you don't know what to do. You don't know where to go. You're not really sure what, what the next step is for you. And so God uses those pivotal circumstances in our lives in order to deepen our faith walk in him. And uh, so we're going to we're gonna, gonna talk about that today because here's what I've discovered that happens to most people is that when we are facing those pivotal moments and circumstances in our lives, one of two things happens, is that either you begin clinging to yourself or you begin clinging, clinging to the Lord. And what I mean by clinging to yourself is you think to yourself, well, you know what, I find myself in this situation and circumstance. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take control and mastery over this, and I'm going to make sure that it works out the way I want it to work out. And so we think we're in control, we believe we're in control, only to find out we're not really in control. And the more we find out we're not really in control is the more we try to control things, only to find out we're not really in control. The other aspect is you can cling to God. You can seek your Heavenly Father for the provisions that only He can provide in the midst of that pivotal circumstance. Because if you cling to yourself, it doesn't take very long before you realize, here's reality <laughs> that's just slapped me in the face, and here's how much I can control, and there is a gap. And the bigger that gap, the bigger, here's what we put in the gap, the bigger the worry, the fear, the anxiety, and the questioning of God's love and care and concern for us. So this is how oftentimes God's people live their lives. We, we are constantly questioning God about things because we find ourselves in these moments in our lives in which we are searching for answers and we're really trying to, trying to fill in those gaps. And at the end of this message, I'm going to give you the one thing. Rather than fixating on control, I'm going to give you Jesus' answer on what we should really be fixating on in order to allow God to take a pivotal, life-defining moment in our lives 
and to utilize it to deepen our faith, hope, confidence, and trust in him. And so here's the spoiler alert. He's going to tell you the one thing you don't fixate on is worry, fear, anxiety, and questioning God's love. So um, James chapter 1 says this, beginning verse 2. Consider pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Now, notice here, there is a connection between the trials that you face and the faith that gets developed. In other words, God is not going to waste a trial, a pivotal circumstance, a defining moment in your life unless you squander that moment. And the way that you squander that moment is, rather than persevering, he says, under the trial, which the word perseverance means simply to remain under it, to remain in the trial until God has accomplished his work, what it is he's seeking to do is that you can bail out on God, and the way that we bail out is what? We try to control, right? We, we try to control, and the more we try to control, we realize we're out of control, and then we fixate on worry, fear, anxiety, and all those other things. So what James says to us is that the reason why God wants you to persevere in faith is so that the result, if you do persevere, is that your faith will become what? Mature and complete and lacking in nothing. How much is nothing? Nothing. Help me out here. All right, circle the word nothing. Lacking in nothing. In other words, there's not any thing that you need that God cannot supply in the midst of that pivotal moment in which you are forced, literally, to trust in the Lord, because either you're going to trust in him or you're going to trust in yourself. And so God is up to something in the midst of these pivotal circumstances in your life, and God uses these circumstances to grow and to strengthen our faith so that we develop outrageous trust in him, which is how we're defining faith in this series. So we have talked about five catalysts or five things that God uses in order to grow and to deepen your faith. We spent the very first message on um, practical teaching. That is, you know, you, you came across the Bible and somebody was teaching in a very practical way and said, here's how this applies and you, and you believe God enough to apply it and, and out of that step of obedience, your obedience intersected with God's faithfulness to what you were obeying and then your faith, your faith was strengthened. It grows, it, it, it develops because God's always coming through with his end of the, uh, end of the deal. All right, so a lot, of, a lot of times God uses, obviously, practical teaching. For other times, um, and again, this list is not in the Bible, but these are things that always come to the surface, are providential relationships. These are not relationships you necessarily set out to develop. Providential relationship is God brings people across your pathway who is, whose faith walk is light years ahead of yours, and the reason he brought this person across your pathway is because he wants to take you from point A to point B, and this individual is going to help you get from point A to point B. For example, my, my wife uh, was given a providential relationship in this church with a young lady, and when she first met the young lady, my, my, my wife is an avid reader. She talked about the books she's reading, and this person who was a college graduate said, I do not read books. And so uh, 
Uh, So let's fast track. Uh, So what happened over time is that through that relationship that they formed and developed, and uh, not only does this person now read books, but um, my wife helped uh, develop her into being a teacher here in our church, and now she has moved to where she's gotten her master's degree in counseling and is now a full-time counselor because God brought a providential relationship to help her move off of point A where she was stuck to get her to point B so that God can bring somebody else into her life and move her to point B to point C. This is how God operates in our lives. He brings people across our pathway that helps move us along the continuum of increasing faith. And the third thing we talked about is that of private disciplines. Private disciplines are things you do privately that come out publicly. So we just looked at three of them that Jesus looked at, generosity, prayer, and fasting. There are many different kinds of disciplines, but they're very important in your life that God uses to develop and to grow your faith. And last week, we talked about personal ministry. Probably nothing will grow your faith more than personal ministry. When you engage in ministry, all of a sudden you realize how inadequate you feel, how inadequate you um, think you are, and, and so it, may, it just kind of like drives you to your knees in prayer and time the word of God, and, and, and you're talking to people and saying, hey, uh, I'm overseeing this ministry. I feel like I'm in over my head. I don't even know what to do next, and, and tell me, how, how do you do it? And you start talking and communicating with people and networking with people, and so God all of a sudden moves your faith in a trajectory that is moving upward. Now, today I want to talk about the one that is probably the least favorite, which are pivotal circumstances, because oftentimes God uses these circumstances in our lives, and he leverages leverages these circumstances in order to grow and to develop our faith. And these, these negative, unexplainable circumstances, watch this, have the potential of rather than drawing you closer to God, driving you away from God. I said they had the potential. I didn't say they had to. I'm just saying a lot of people that I've talked to have walked away from the faith. Uh, Almost always when I ask them, tell me your story, in their story is this negative, unexplainable, pivotal circumstance that came in their life that drove a wedge between themselves and their heavenly father. And as a result, they made the decision to walk away from their father. But God understands the importance of our faith and trust and hope and confidence in him in the long run, and therefore he is willing to, he's willing to put it all on the line because he understands that it's through these negative, often unexplainable, pivotal, defining moments in your life that God draws you closer to him and deepens your faith in a way that he could never do otherwise. And this is what James is talking about. He says, this is why we're going to consider it pure joy, because God is at work. God is doing something and accomplishing something that he could not accomplish apart from these kinds of circumstances in our lives. So now go back to John chapter 11, because we're going to look at an example of this, uh, of a pivotal circumstance, because God, as I said, leverages pivotal circumstances in our lives. But here's a new twist. And this is what we're going to find out in this story between Jesus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. God leverages circumstances, but sometimes he creates negative circumstances in your life in order to deepen your faith. 
Now, that's the part of God that, that, that people kind of push back on and say, well, I, I just don't think God's that way. I don't, I don't believe God does that. I think the story is going to bear out the fact that sometimes God says, your faith in me, your trust, hope, and confidence is so, so important to me. I'm going to, I'm going to arrange a circumstance that's going to cause you to put your faith on the line, and either you're going to go deeper with me or you'll walk away, but you've got to, you're going to make a decision one way or the other. But I'm willing to gamble on the fact that you are going to put your hope, trust, and faith in deeper ways in me and what I'm doing in your life. So I want to give you three truths about um, pivotal circumstances. Here's the first one. God leverages pivotal circumstances in order to forge our faith, in order to forge our faith. I remember as a kid, uh, you know, somewhere in Pennsylvania, we're uh, one of these um, towns that's like a show. It's like taking a step back in the 1800s. And I remember the first time I walked into the, uh, this place was called, is the blacksmith shop. And uh, so I was watching these blacksmiths in there. They have this huge anvil, you know, and they heat up the metal and they put it on the anvil and they start hammering away at the metal and they're forming and fashioning something into what it is they need, whether it be a horseshoe, uh, some kind of tool that's used on a farm, whatever it might be. And this is exactly what God does in our lives is that God sometimes puts us in the furnace and kind of heats us up. And then he kind of takes his heavenly, his heavenly hammer and, be, and places us on the anvil of life and begins hammering away in order to form and to fashion us into what? It's always the same. It's into the image of Jesus. And so as God is forming and fashioning us into the image of Jesus, sometimes he leverages, sometimes he creates these pivotal circumstances in order for that to take place in your life. So here's the story John chapter 11, beginning verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick, and this word sick here doesn't mean he had a post-nasal drip or, you know, just felt a little bad and a little stomach issue going on. This is a sickness that will result in death unless, something, unless somebody intervenes. He was from Bethany, the village of, of Mary and her sister Martha. This is the Mary whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So... The sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. The one whom you love is sick. Now, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are very close friends of Jesus. All right, so they have invested in Jesus' ministry. They have witnessed Jesus' healings and teachings. Uh, they lived in Bethany, which was a couple miles outside of Jerusalem, which is located in the southern part of Judea. And so when Jesus would go to, oftentimes to Jerusalem, and sometimes he would be teaching there, and he'd stir up a little bit of trouble, and he, he would leave, and he'd go, and he'd stay in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And so they were very, very close friends. That's why when word is sent to Jesus, you'll notice it does, the word sent to Jesus isn't Lord, Lazarus is sick. It's simply the message, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. Well, Jesus understands this message is coming from Mary and Martha, and the one that he loved, he loved them, and he loved their brother Lazarus like his own brother because of the investment that they had made in him and he in them. And so automatically, Jesus knows who they are talking about. 
Now, Jesus has healed people in many different ways, right? Sometimes Jesus heals people by walking up and uh, he touches them in some form or fashion, makes mud pads and puts them on their eyes and touches their ears. And sometimes Jesus stands at a distance and he heals people. Sometimes Jesus heals people that aren't even there in front of him. And, and these are people that he does not even know. But notice the emphasis here is on the fact that Jesus, this is the one not only whom you know, but this is the one whom you love, who you have this deep, abiding, loving relationship with because, man, they were just, again, they were, they were just like brothers. And now Jesus establishes a brand new category. He's received word. Lazarus is sick. This isn't just any old sickness. This is one that's going to result in death unless somehow Lazarus is healed either by medication or by something that is supernatural. Why are they sending word to Jesus? Because Mary, Martha, and Lazarus had seen Jesus heal many people on many different occasions. They knew he was able to do it. But notice what it says. When, verse 4, when, when he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, here's the new category that Jesus creates here. He creates the category that this sickness, this illness, this disease can be leveraged by God for his own glory. In other words, difficulties, trials, pivotal circumstances can actually be created for God's purpose in order to bring glory to himself and to do a life-altering work in the person and through the person. Now, now, don't miss that. God is creating a very negative, pivotal moment, defining moment in Lazarus's life as well as his sister's that is going to bring ultimate glory to God and it's going to do, God is, Jesus is going to do such a work in Lazarus and Mary and Martha's life that it will forever change the trajectory of their faith in him. This is something so dramatic, so out there. Now, if you and I were to bring glory to God, we would prefer bringing glory to God in a much different way, right? We would prefer like, okay, uh, I just... Um, I just wrote a, a, an incredible book that was so helpful to the people in the kingdom of God, and, and now I'm at you know, Barnes & Noble doing a huge book signing, and, and people you know, are just like ooing and aahing over me, and I say, well, you know, it's all for the glory of God, right? Or maybe you wrote a song, and you won a Grammy Award, and, and now you're up on stage in front of you know, thousands of people, a million across the, millions across the airway, and you say, well, I just want to thank Jesus for giving me this song. This is all for his glory, right? So, or, or, or me, I, you know, my, I was like, you know, hey, I just want, you know, sank a 90-foot putt to win the U.S. Open golf tournament, and as they're interviewing me at the end, I say, well, you know, the Lord's just been gracious to me. I just, I, I just golf so that I can bring glory to Jesus. So that's what we'd want, right? But notice what Jesus says. Jesus says that Lazarus is about to enter into a time in his life, a defining moment, he says it's not going to result in his death, but does he die? Right? Spoiler alert, yeah, he does. He dies, 
Now, now Jesus knows he's going to bring him back to life, but Mary and Martha don't know that. Lazarus doesn't know that at this time. And so God is setting something up here, and Jesus says, it, it, you know, it's good. I've got another program, a much more effective program. In fact, this program is going to be leveraged by God in order to grow and to deepen the, the faith, trust, and the confidence of not only Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, but also of my own disciples, because he's got them in mind also, as we're going to notice here in just a moment. And so notice it says in verse 5, Jesus loved uh, Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. Again, this is just not any normal relationship. Uh, he knew their names, knew where they lived. They supported him. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. So Jesus does exactly what is not expected of him. Word is sent, your friend Lazarus is dying, and Jesus says, well, thank you for that information. Hey, guys, sit down. We're not going anywhere. We're not leaving. And so he delays for a couple of days. Well, what happens in the process? Lazarus dies. He ceases to function. He's, he's no more. And for two days, Jesus does nothing. Now, you've felt this in your life before. You were in a moment in your life, in a pitiful situation, in which you were saying, you know, God, I need you to help me, and I need you, you, you know, Lord, you know I need a job, and you know I need this, and you know I need that, and, and Lord, I'm, I'm trusting in you, I'm waiting on you, and it's like there's just de this delay, this ongoing delay. It's like, Lord, don't you know the deadline? Don't you see the deadline? And there's just this, like, this delay, it keeps going on and on, and you begin questioning yourself, and now your heart is struggling within you, and you've got this emotional war going on of... You're fighting off, trying to fight off the fear and the worry and the anxiety. And God, does, don't you love me? Don't you care? Don't you see what is going on? And so, but nothing. And you're being stretched. You're being challenged. And so two days while Mary and Martha suffer, and they're watching their brother die. And you can imagine, like, Martha's upstairs caring for Lazarus, and Mary's downstairs on the front porch looking, scanning the horizon, hoping that Jesus will come over the horizon to come and to save the day. And then they, they, they swap, you know, and then Mary goes up with Lazarus, and Martha's out on the front porch, and people come passing by. Hey, have you seen Rabbi Jesus? Have you seen him down the road? Is he coming? Is he, is he going to be here? And so all of their hopes and dreams were put in the fact that they had sent word to Jesus that they're friend whom they, he loves is sick and he's dying and yet Jesus doesn't come and he dies. And then it says, Jesus says to his disciples, verse 7, well, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you and yet you're going back there? Like so, okay, so remember Bethany is located in Judea. The last time Jesus was there, they tried to stone him. And uh, the disciples are thinking, why would we go back there? Hey, 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 Jesus, um, we seem to remember that there was this guy. I don't remember his first name, but he was like a Roman centurion who came to you one day and said, you know, my, my servant's sick. And Jesus, you said, hey, I'll go to your house, heal your servant. And he said, no, 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 um, yeah, I, I'm not even worthy for you to have to come to my house. I know you're a man of authority. You can just say the word, speak the word, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus said, okay, I'm down with that. Jesus speaks the word. The servant is healed. And the disciples are probably thinking to themselves, Lord, why in the world do we need to go back to Judea, to Bethany? Why don't we just gather around? 
chanting a kumbaya around the bonfire, and you just kind of like do another one of those kinds of miracles, and we know that Lazarus will be a-okay. And so they kind of camouflage, like, Lord, uh, we don't want you to go back there because, you know, after all, they tried to stone you there. We're just looking out for you, not for ourselves, just you. And then when you get down further in the verses, Eeyore um, Thomas finally speaks up and says, well, we might as well all just go and die with him. Right? You always got somebody throwing the water on the fire. Now... Let's think about this. Verse 11. And after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. And they're probably thinking to themselves, well, if he's fallen asleep, that means the fever's probably broken. He's going to be okay. No, no, no. That's not what I mean. And, and, but I'm going, to, I, I'm going there to wake him up. And his disciples replied, well, Lord, if he sleeps, he's going to get better. Well, Jesus says, no, I'm speaking of death. His disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he said plainly, Lazarus is dead. Now watch this, because here's the catalyst here. here. Here's the defining moment. He says, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there. Say, what, what? So, so Jesus, you're telling us that you are glad that Lazarus died, that you're glad that Mary and Martha suffered watching their brother die, and now they're in mourning. You are glad that these things have happened and transpired that are so heartbreaking, so heart-crushing. Are, are you kidding me? Why, why, why don't we just go back and, you know, you just kind of waking back up and, and break the fever. And notice he says, but I, I'm glad I was not there for what? For your sake. Well, well Lord, what about Mary and Martha's sake? And, and what about the sake of Lazarus? I mean, you, you, you're, you're going to put them through that kind of experience? And Jesus, you, are you really saying to us that you are glad for the disappointment of Mary and Martha? Are you saying that you are glad for this mystery surrounding this whole thing? And he says, yes, yeah, yeah, so, so that, so that, and this is a, what's called a henna clause, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Jesus is saying, listen, fellas, I know you don't understand it right now, but there is something so overarching, so big, so major, so dramatic that I'm about to do, this is going to blow your mind. It's going to blow you away. You're going to see me in a whole different perspective and a whole different. Uh, so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to allow the one I love to die. I'm willing to allow the people who are around him to be heartbroken. And, and I'm, I'm allowing that all of that to happen because there is an important lesson. And the lesson is like, you know, it is like faith. Faith that has not been tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. A faith that has not been forged on the anvil of life will not last. Now, now remember that Jesus in just a few weeks is going to hand this entire mission over to these guys to carry on after he leaves. And what Jesus understands is I can't have them with a weak, shaking, mamby-pamby kind of faith. I need them to have a deep, forged Trust, confidence in me that is unmovable, that is unshakable, that cannot be, cannot be taken away. And so Jesus knows this is my end goal, and because that's my end goal, I'm going to use this example, this pivotal circumstance, this defining moment, so that, 
so that I can dive into them with a faith that is going to be a faith that is unshakable, so that you may believe. I, I, to which I would say, Lord Jesus, I know faith is important to you. Obviously, it's important to you. But is it, is it that important that you would allow something so heart-wrenching and heartbreaking to happen in my life, that you would leverage that somehow or even create that moment? Because this did Jesus not create this moment? Jesus could have, when he received the word, spoke the word, and Lazarus would have gotten up off his bed. But Jesus chose not to go to delay so that Lazarus' death would take place. He created the moment because faith is that important to him. Because he need, we need a bigger faith. Is, is really faith that big a deal to you? Is it really worth that, Jesus? And Jesus would say yes. And now watch this. This is, this is a hard lesson because this is where people often, often deviate off of Christianity and they say, you know that? That's exactly why I don't believe in Jesus. I don't, I don't trust in Christianity because, you know, God has, and, and then they fill in the blank. God has allowed them to experience some crisis, some pivotal moment, some defining moment in their life, and it did not turn out the way that you wanted. It did not turn out the way that you were praying for it to turn out, but it did turn out in a way that could have brought glory to God and could have deepened your faith, hope, trust in God in a way that would forever change the trajectory of your walk with him. And this is in total opposition of everything some people think that we believe about God. But you know what? This is the Jesus of the Bible. These guys are about to carry the ball, the entire mission of God on planet Earth. He can't afford for them to drop the ball. And so faith is that important to him. Now, might I say this, that probably most of you came to faith in Christ because of some heart-wrenching event that took place in your life, some defining moment, some pivotal circumstance that God leveraged to awaken you to your need for Jesus. And he'll do the same thing in building and forging and developing and deepening our faith walk with him. If you're a journaler, like my wife, I can assure you that there are moments that you did not like. But as you look back in hindsight, you see how God used those pivotal circumstances in your life to deepen your trust and your hope and your faith and your walk in him. And God used those moments to transition your life by transitioning your thought processes that led you to the conforming of the image of Jesus within you. And now all of a sudden your life is dramatically different. So here's the second truth. God's, God leverages pivotal circumstances in order to unveil Jesus to us. Go down to verse 17. It says, on Jesus' arrival, Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come with Mary and Martha to comfort them and the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you Ask, Lord, if you had been here. You see, there are tragic times and moments in our lives, and we will say and whisper, 
The same thing Martha is saying and whispering is, God, why did you allow this to happen? I don't understand it. I don't get it. You said you loved us. You care about us. And yet you'll let this happen. And I think Mary and Martha had a conversation, been talking about this before Jesus arrived because Mary comes out later on and says the exact same thing to Jesus. Hey, if you've been here, our brother would have never died. And this is what happens when life treats us unfairly, which invites the question, hey, Jesus, by the way, why weren't you here? Why didn't you come? Why did you delay? But Jesus never answered that question. He didn't even broach that subject. But what he did say, and what Mary says, or Martha says to him, says, but I know, I know, even now, God will give you whatever you ask. She is standing in front of Jesus, and they're still trying to figure out, you know, is Jesus God? Is he really the Messiah? And, uh, and we notice that when he prays, he prays to, to God, and, and, and so we're, we're trying to figure out, but Lord, I have witnessed with my own eyes, I have witnessed with my own eyes where times where you speak that you have power over nature, you have power over disease, you have power over demons, you have power over everything. I know that if you just say, the word, if you just ask the Father, he will do what you ask him to do. And so she's standing in front of him, trying to figure all this out, and he says, don't worry, Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha would say, well, of course he's going to rise again. That's what we say at all funerals, right? We remind ourselves that one day they're going to rise from the grave, and they're going to be with Abraham and Moses and Isaac and Jacob and all of them in this celestial place and that God's gone and prepared. But Jesus but Jesus, you could have kept this from happening now, not some other time. Yeah, I know he's going to rise someday, but I'm talking about right now. Why did you not come now? Why are you letting us go through this? And Jesus, here's the unveiling. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Now, notice Jesus claims what? To be resurrection and life. There are those who say, well, Jesus was nothing more than a good teacher. Good teachers don't make statements like this. There are some who say, well, Jesus was a good moral person. That's true, but he makes a statement beyond that. You're right. I am a teacher who has come from God, but I'm bigger than that. I am a miracle who has come from God, but I am so much bigger than that. Martha, I want you to come to know. I want you to come to realize. I want you to come to experience that I am actually resurrection and life. You're right. I can ask God anything, but right now in front of you, he stands resurrection, and life. You don't make a statement like that unless you are able to back it up. And what was on the line here is who Jesus really is. Because Jesus wants Mary, Martha, Lazarus, his disciples, everyone who's there mourning his death, to experience Jesus beyond just being a miracle worker, beyond just being a good teacher, 
they want, he wanted them to experience his resurrection and life ability by resurrecting Lazarus out of the grave. And the, the reason why this is so, so important is because every believer I know, you know, you know, it's like, well, you know, okay, yeah, I, I'm trusting Jesus to be my Savior and Lord. And, you know, he's that guy that came, you know, thousands of years ago and died on the cross, all that, yon, yon. Uh, yeah, yeah, I trusted in him to, to get my sins forgiven so I get my passport to heaven. And, uh, yeah, he died, but, but they really don't know him in a very personal way. He's there, but that's about the extent of it. Can I just show you something? When God leverages pivotal moments in your life, circumstances, defining moments, he wants you to experience Jesus not as an abstract, but personally. For example, I have come to know Jesus as my resurrection and life when I got saved. All right, I, I knew that my life was a wreck and I was heading down the wrong course in life and who knows where I would have ended up, maybe in prison before it was all said and done. But then all of a sudden I, I come across the pathway. Jesus comes across, his, he intersects his life with my life and I receive him to be Savior and Lord and all of a sudden something dramatically changes within me and now I know him no, not just as Savior, not just somebody who died for my sins, but I know now his resurrection power that is inside of me living through the person of the Holy Spirit. I come to know Jesus as resurrection and life when our marriage was dead and my wife is asking me for a divorce and I don't think there's any way out of this and then all of a sudden Jesus shows up as resurrection and life and he takes a dead marriage and he breathes life back into that marriage. Now, it's not something I just read on the page that Jesus is resurrection and life. It is something that is real. It is something that is tangible. It is something that has infected me and impacted my life forever. I've come to know Jesus as my comforter. Where did I find that comfort when my sister of 20 years of age is killed in a car accident, when my grandparents are tragically killed, and, and now all of a sudden I'm standing in front of an audience, and I'm preaching their funeral, and I'm trying to make, you know, sense of all of this. Why in the world would they die in such a tragic manner and all of a sudden Jesus intersects in my life to be the comforter that I needed in that moment in time in my life and I will never forget those pivotal moments that are forever etched in my mind. Would I wish that on anyone else? Absolutely not, but I wouldn't give up those moments for anything. I come to know Jesus as my deliverer when he delivered me from the bondage of drugs and alcohol and I've come to know Jesus as my encourager when disappointments have come in my life and they have been many throughout the course of my lifetime, but yet Jesus brought encouragement where there was nothing but discouragement, and I've come to know Jesus as my friend who sticks closer than a brother. When I've experienced things throughout my life like being bullied and rejected and misunderstood and having your motives questioned on and off again. And so this, this, is what, this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying, hey, Greg, I've, I've, I've leveraged those things and maybe I've even, I've taken, I've caused those things, those moments, so that you can come to know me not as someone who is abstract, but someone who is absolutely personal so that I might drive your faith, hope, and trust deeper and deeper in me. That's what Jesus is doing. And that's what he does in your life. If you really think back in your life at the moments, defining moments in your life in which you really trusted Jesus, and these are moments when you could have just like walked away. You could have been hurt and just like, I'm done with 
Jesus, I'm done with God, I'm, I'm done with Christianity, and I'm just walking away, and this just isn't working out for me. He says, I, I, I've allowed this. So, and he says, he who believes in me, that word believes means to trust in me with your, your whole heart, to put your full confidence of your weight in me. It's about faith. And so then Jesus, just wrapping this up, Jesus says, now um, take, me to where, take me to where Lazarus is. And they take him down there, and the Bible says he's troubled in his spirit. You know, he's, he's angry. He's agitated that, that death has, is ruling and reigning in this moment in time. And he stands before the tomb of Lazarus, and it says that he wept. Which reminds us that Jesus always steps into our pain. He always steps into our agony. He steps into what it is that we are experiencing. We don't have this God who is out there somewhere in a distant, far, far land away. He is someone who walks through the valley of the shadow of death with us. And we fear no evil because he is with us. His rod and his staff, they bring comfort to us. And what I've discovered in my life and in ministry is the person who leans into God as the person opposed to the person who turns away from God, oftentimes it has to do with who they are surrounded with, the people that are around them. When life isn't making sense and God's not making sense to you and you're you're trying to find out, you know, why why is this going on? Why is this happening? And and you've run through all the scenarios and you've run through all the the, the normal lanes. God, did I do this? Have I sinned? Have I done this, this, and this? And we travel through all those lanes and we go, okay, I've got my life all straightened up before God, but God, I still don't understand. And so sometimes it takes people coming around you who will help to frame the question differently. And to see it from a different perspective than what you are trying to work your way through. And it's people in that environment who have been through that valley perhaps on their own and they've come out on the other side. Listen, when you feel like God is doing something to you, you'll lose faith. But when you understand that God is is not doing something to you, he's doing something in you, then you have a whole new perspective and a whole new framework by which to navigate through that part of your life. So one of the things I can just say is this. It's one of my prayers when I'm finding myself in these moments is simply this. Jesus, I simply need to see you in this. I, I just need to see you. And um, it's amazing that you will get glimpses of Jesus this is, what, this is what Mary and Martha, they needed to see Jesus as resurrection and life. They needed to see him in this. But what's he going to do with all this? What's he going to do with death? Our, our brother's gone. We know you can do this, but what are you going to do now? And my prayer is not, God, I'm asking you to change everything. I'm just asking to see you in the midst of this. And here's the third one. God leverages pivotal circumstances to deepen your compassion for others. So Jesus walks up to the grave. He calls Lazarus out. And he tells those around him, he says, now take off his grave clothes. What are the grave clothes? It's the baggage from your past. It's what keeps you chained to your past. It's what keeps you filled with guilt and shame and self-condemnation. 
It's what's still rolling around inside of you, the anger and bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness and all the negative fleshly stuff that's still clinging all over you. And so that stuff has to be taken off. Paul, the Apostle Paul called about taking off the old and putting on the new. Because if you do not, then you'll become a bitter, negative, ungrateful human being, Christian or not. And there are a lot of them walking around. And so 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4, Paul says, Praise be to the God of our Lord and Father Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. In other words, there is something changes within us when we experience a hurt and a pain and we trust in God regardless of how, what the outcome is going to be. And, and God does his work and we persevere in faith and God brings maturity and completeness and, and does a work inside of us. And now that I've traveled through that valley, when I come alongside of other people traveling through that valley, I have a new profound sense of compassion for that person or that family. Now, you know this as well as I do, just from your own experiences. You know, my wife and I have had experiences walking through the valley of her mother with Alzheimer's, right? Just seeing how being a caregiver on her dad's part has just like draining life out of him and how difficult that is. And, and when your mother is changing before your eyes and and she's not the same person anymore. And it's, this isn't the person I, 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 I've known. And now all of a sudden her behavior is changing. Her character is changing. And, and it's a very difficult road for people to walk down. And when you've walked through that valley, when you've, you've engaged in that pivotal circumstance, and God walks through it with you, and Jesus reveals himself, makes himself known in a very powerful and profound way, and you get on the other side of that valley, now when you look back and you see people all around you who are going through the exact same thing that you just went through, now all of a sudden you have a new compassion for that individual, for that family, for what they are encountering and enduring in their own life. And it moves you, right? It moves you in profound ways. And so there comes a time in your life you have to make the decision. And Jesus is going to have you put it on the line. Will you follow me no matter what? Will you follow me no matter what? So here's the faith factor is that pivotal circumstances test my faith and therefore strengthens my confidence in my heavenly father. And so here's what you, here's the thing that Jesus would say that you need to fixate on. Here's the key through all of this. Matthew 6.33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God, and these things will be given to you, and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus had just discussed the things that brings worry, fear, anxiety, questioning of God's love for us, just discussed all of that stuff, and his conclusion was, you can either fixate on self and control, or you can fixate on God's kingdom first, and then God will add all these things, all these things that will bring worry, fear, anxiety in your life. He'll bring all these things. He'll, he'll tie it all together. He will, he will do all things will be given to you as well. In other words, um, whether you are experiencing a pivotal circumstance because of a bad decision, because you live in a fallen world, or God has orchestrated it. What's important is your response. 
Event plus response equals outcome. And so what Jesus puts the emphasis on is what? God's kingdom first. Not Jesus as a vicinity in your life, but Jesus at the center of your life. God's kingdom is his rule and his authority over us. I am surrendering. I'm submitting myself under the authority and the rulership of Jesus in my life. And he says, when I, when I do that, he says, all these things that I need, everything that I need is that, that God now filters everything that I need. All these things that are creating angst in me, all this worry and fear and anxiety and question. He says, all these things, God releases the resources through the power of the Holy Spirit from heaven into my life so that as God, as I'm persevering with the Lord, staying in, in, the, you know, in the moment of the pivotal circumstance, and I'm walking with Jesus, and I'm surrendering to Jesus, I don't understand it. I don't know why it's happening. I don't see God in all this. I can't make sense of all of this, but as long as I keep Jesus first, as long as I keep him at the center of my heart and my life, Jesus says that if you operate in the mode of surrender, then I will give you everything you need to see you through that. And when you come out on the other side of all of this, Jesus won't just be a name that you cling to, but he will be a reality that you trust in every single day of your life. Let's pray together. Father, we, I, I just come before you this morning on behalf of this congregation, on behalf of the, those who are listening, maybe online. And maybe listening today, we'll be listening in the future. But Lord, you know that there's so much of life because we live in a broken world that just knocks us off our feet. But yet, Father, we know that things that are surrendered to you have the potential to not only bring glory to you, and the reason they bring glory to you is because you leverage these things to forge our faith, hope, trust, confidence in you in deeper and more profound ways that forever change the direction of our lives. And Father, that is so, so important to you. And I pray that it would be so, so important to us. So I pray, Father, for the one who, who has no relationship with you. You are a term. You are an abstract person, being even Jesus, even the name Jesus is just someone who lived a long, long time ago. I pray, Father, that they would bring that today into a personal level. Drop that into a personal realm in their life by putting their hope, their trust, their faith in Jesus alone to be their resurrection and life. That he would breathe into them spiritual life in the power of the Holy Spirit as they open up their hearts and yield them over to you. And so, Father, we come afresh and anew today with hearts that are fully surrendered to you. And may that be, may that be something we do every single day, every morning, fresh surrender, fresh surrender, fresh surrender.
Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we sing about surrender.